morning we begin a series that God willing will take us right up to Easter. A most wonderful part of the Bible that any preacher looking at is filled with, I think, a sense of reverence and apprehension as to how you can explain some of the most wonderful words ever spoken in the world. These are the final words of our Lord Jesus Christ recorded exclusively in John's Gospel, chapters 13, right up to the end of chapter 17. We'll be looking at this morning and evening under the title, The Last Word. And this morning we're going to look at a theme that I've entitled, Love Without Limits, the reading that was read for us in John 13. Now, if you've got a Bible, will you open it please at John 13? If you haven't got a Bible, just look around and ask someone to pass one to you, would you? And we'll read the end of the chapter that was read for us by the two young people earlier on, from verse 31 to the end of the chapter. John 13, verse 31. When he, that's Judas, was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. This is God's word. Last month, 2.4 billion pounds was spent in one day in the UK on February the 14th on Valentine's Day. 26 million pounds was spent on 13 million Valentine cards. 151 million pounds was spent on flowers. 300, I've got all this research off the net by the way. 383 million pounds was spent on chocolate. And an estimated 3,000 men proposed on the day spending an average of, I was horrified to learn, 1,300 pounds per ring. I won't tell you what I spent myself. <laughs> Which was many years ago, friends. Top of the league for spending were Londoners, £132 per person, while Powys in Wales was the lowest with £32 per person. I have no figures for Scotland. <laughs> David Southwell, 
Director of Communications for the British Retail Consortium, commented, Valentine's Day has grown into a huge occasion in the UK, probably because it gives us the perfect excuse to spoil those we love the most. You see, true love always shows itself in action. And the greatest demonstration of love in action that the world has ever seen comes from the one who is the author of love, from God, who is love. The Bible describes this love in action. We read it at the beginning of our service. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. These words were written in a little letter by a man named John, one of the twelve men who had personally experienced the love of Jesus Christ for three years. And in his gospel account of the life of Jesus, John describes the last act of love for Jesus, which they experienced on the evening before his death. John 13, verse 1. Just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Now pause a moment there. Imagine you've not read the rest of the chapter ever. How do you think Jesus might show his disciples on this last night of his life, how would he show them the full extent of his love? What would he do? Would he confer a great gift on them? Or an ability to do incredible miracles? So, I, you just can't imagine the full extent of his love. Here's what he did. How he showed it. He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel round his waist, and after that he poured water in a basin to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. He showed them the full extent of his love by washing their feet. So you may ask, what's so amazing about that? But that's because we don't live in first century Israel, where it happened. And most of us, I guess, have never practiced foot washing. If we're to appreciate the significance of the love that Jesus showed, we need to understand something about foot washing, a bit of background information. First and most obviously, foot washing was a practical act of hospitality. When a person entered a house in first century Israel, or anywhere in the Roman Empire for that matter, his sandal feet, they didn't wear socks, most of them anyway, his sandal feet would be dirty, sweaty, and probably smelly from walking on dusty roads. They'd probably ache as well. Now, in our culture, when you visit someone, your host greets you, and as the weather is significantly different, most of the time in Scotland, they take your coat from you. It's an act of hospitality. And they usher you into the room. In the first century, people didn't usually wear coats. They might have worn cloaks. But in the Middle East... A guest would be seated, his sandals removed, and his feet washed and maybe massaged, and then dried off. It would be an act of great discourtesy not to wash the feet of your guests. 
It was a basic and practical act of hospitality. But notice the second thing about it. It was also the menial act of a slave. The host himself would not normally dream of washing his guest's feet. It would be below his dignity. No, this was a task reserved for slaves in the household. It was the task of the lowest of menial servants to wash people's feet. In fact, one commentator writes, some Jews insisted that Jewish slaves should not be required to wash the feet of others. This job was reserved only for Gentile slaves. Now, this is the culture and background. It is hard for us to understand the shame and stigma of what it would mean for a non-slave to wash someone's feet. I was trying to think of a good example. Here's the nearest I can get to it from my own personal experience. Many years ago, a new missionary in India taught at a school for boys from a very underprivileged, poor background. One day, he innocently and unwittingly, at the end of the class, asked one of the boys, would you mind just staying behind and sweeping out the classroom? The young boy was absolutely distraught, and he ran from the room. An hour later, his father turned up at the class of the teacher, and he fell before him and he said, please, sir, please don't ask my son to sweep the classroom. I will do it for him, but please don't ask him to do it. Well, what's the problem, you say, with sweeping a room? Well, if you live in India, sweeping is reserved as a low-caste occupation. And for this boy to sweep this room would have meant utter humiliation for him. Now, it's not an exact parallel. But think of foot washing in similar terms. A menial act of the lowest slave. Now, back to the story in John chapter 13. Jesus and his disciples arrive for a final meal together. Probably a Passover meal, though not all scholars are agreed about this. As they enter the room, it's already prepared. There are tables with food on them and mats all the way around on which they recline to eat. They didn't sit on chairs It was a relaxing evening meal and they reclined against each other in a sort of big circle around the tables. But as they enter the room, there is no slave to wash the feet of the disciples. So who's going to do it? Well, no doubt each of the other disciples looked at one another and none of them is prepared to humiliate himself and so they sit down to eat with dirty feet. Now picture the scene. Partway through the meal, the Lord Jesus Christ gets up, takes off his outer clothing, wraps a towel round his waist, then he pours water into a basin and one by one he kneels in front of these disciples and begins to wash their feet and dry them off with a towel. Now, if you had been one of those disciples, how would you have felt? Embarrassed. And astounded. For Jesus is not just washing the feet of his peers, unheard of. No. He is the Lord of glory. The Son of God. The Word become flesh. The one that they confessed was the Messiah. He was humbling himself on his knees, washing the feet of his disciples, performing the menial act of a slave. Again, let me give you an illustration which I think may help. Some years ago, we took some friends who were visiting us down to Leith to see the Royal Yacht Britannia. I guess 
Many of you have been and taken friends there as well. It's well worth going to. Not just to see the yacht, but you get one of these tape-recorded commentaries in each place. You press a button at number 21 and it tells you all facts about what happened in that particular room. It's an interesting exercise. The tape told us that if a member of the royal family were to enter a room or a place on the yacht where you were working as a crew member, they were told to instantly freeze on the spot and pretend they weren't there until the royal person passed by and then they could resume what they were doing. Now supposing, and this is a very big suppose, supposing you were the lowest rating on the Royal Yacht Britannia and you're out there in the cold and you're scrubbing the decks. Suppose, I'm, I'm always reluctant to say this in case I get done for treason, but anyway, supposing, I was going to put some pictures on the screen and I thought maybe it wasn't a problem, but just supposing Her Majesty the Queen walked onto the deck and seeing you there said, that looks rather cold, just a minute, why don't you sit down, I'll get you a cup of coffee. And you sit down to drink the coffee and she says, here, let me do that. And she puts an apron on and gets down on her hands and knees with the brush and begins to scrub the deck. Now, please, if this is on tape, let's just be careful here. But, I mean, <laughs> you say, well, it's just incredible. It will never happen. Her Majesty's Her Majesty. She shouldn't be expected to do those kind of things. What a ridiculous story. But here's something far more incredible. Jesus got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin. Began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel wrapped around his waist. It is an incredible act of love, given who Jesus is. And added to that, it's an incredible act of love, given what Jesus faced. Most of us, certainly for myself, when we face difficult circumstances are self-absorbed, are we not? But Jesus, even in the final hours of his life, is focused on his disciples to show them his love. Even though he knows that within a few hours he will be arrested, beaten, betrayed, mocked and nailed to a cross. It is Passover. And he knows he will be the Passover lamb. The innocent victim who will bear the sin of the world on his shoulders, who bears the wrath of God, is just anger against sin and sinners. So it's an incredible act of love, given who Jesus was and given what he faced. But thirdly, and I want to focus on this in the rest of this morning, it is an incredible act of love, given who the disciples were. You see, Jesus knows all things. Nothing catches him unawares. He's operating to the divine agenda. He knows, says John, at the beginning of chapter 13. He knows the time has come for him to leave the world. But not only that, he knows these men in front of him whose feet he is washing. He knows that Judas has already agreed to betray him. He knows that Peter will deny him. And he knows that all the others will abandon him. And knowing all this, he now shows them the full extent of his love by washing the feet of Judas Iscariot, of Peter and of the other ten. Jim and John, Andy, Phil, Bart, Matt, Tom, Simon, Thad and Jamie. And I say the names like that because we read them and think, wow, James and John. Matthew, 
Matt. They're just ordinary people. People like us, to whom he showed the full extent of his love. That's incredibly encouraging. If you think God doesn't love you. And if you think you're a failure. And if you're a person who's denied Christ. Jesus shows you the full extent of his love. Now the crucial issue on which everything hangs, the crux, the cross as it were, the issue of the cross, is how we respond to this love that God shows to us this morning in Christ. And there are ultimately only two possible responses to such love. And I want to suggest to you they're exemplified by the two characters that John focuses on in this chapter 13. Let's start with the first, which is the sad one. Judas, rejecting the love of Jesus. That's the first alternative. On that fateful evening, John tells us that certain events had already taken place. Look at verse 2. The evening meal was already being served, was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. The devil, friends, is a real and malevolent personality who is active in our world. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8, he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 8, he also operates like an angel, masquerading as an angel of light to deceive people. And as such, his policy is this. He wants to prompt people to disobey God and to reject Christ, his son. That is his strategy. Right in the beginning of the Garden of Eden, he persuaded our first parents to disobey God. And now he does this with Judas. He is prompting him to betray Christ. However, that does not let Judas or us off the hook. Friends, the devil made me do it is not an appeal that is accepted in God's court. No, the devil prompted Judas... But John 13, 2 tells us he had already responded to his prompting. Judas is responsible. It is his action that will do it. In his gospel account, Luke describes what had already happened. That the religious leaders, he says, were looking for a way to get rid of Jesus. Luke 22, verses 4 to 6. And Judas went to the chief priests and officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. So, here we are in John 13. Is the die cast? Is there no more hope for Judas? Or maybe for someone else here this morning who's rejected God's love, is heading in the wrong direction. Was it too late? No, he still has a final opportunity. For Jesus showed his disciples and Judas the full extent of his love. There is a final chance here. Many scholars believe that Judas was sitting in the place of honour in this circle of reclining around the table on the left-hand side of Jesus. That was the privileged place. You couldn't get any closer to Jesus. Yet Judas was as far from Jesus as could be. Wherever he sat, it is absolutely certain that Jesus washed the feet of Judas Iscariot. I wonder what he thought when that happened. 
And not only that, in the meal that followed, Judas also received a piece of bread. It was a special privilege piece. If you know the background, don't have time to go into it. A special piece of bread dipped into the bitter herbs that was celebrated at this meal. And he gave it personally to Judas. He not only washed his feet, he gave him some food. Judas accepted the bread, but he rejected the love of Jesus. And it was at that point, the point of no return, when it was too late. Notice in his account in John 13, John records two things that happened at that point. You see it in verse 27? As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Almost certainly a satanic possession, which is an exceedingly rare thing despite what people tell you. Jesus said, what you're about to do, do quickly. Jesus is still in control, for Judas is still under orders. Then notice verse 30. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. These are very telling words, especially in the original. And night. He rejected the one who was the light of the world, who had come into the world. And he went out into the darkness. Not just of the night, but of the utter darkness of hell. He was lost forever. An article in the Times newspaper on January the 12th is entitled, Judas the Misunderstood. And it reports that Judas Iscariot, the disciple who betrayed Jesus with a kiss, is to be given a makeover by Vatican scholars. The proposed rehabilitation of the man who paid 30 pieces of silver to identify Jesus to the Roman soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane comes on the ground that he was not deliberately evil, but was just fulfilling his part in God's plan. Friends, he was fulfilling God's part in his plan, but he didn't do that meaningfully or knowingly. He deliberately betrayed Jesus. Jesus showed him the full extent of his love, and Judas rejected it, and rejected Jesus. And as such, it's a terrible warning to all of us. Especially those who've been close to Christ. Experience his love. You can experience the love of Christ, yet ultimately reject it and reject him. And I say it with tears. Because it's a terrible thing. Forgive my emotion, friends. Your life and death hangs on. Your eternal life. And I simply say, don't cross the line. Today is another opportunity to respond to God's love in Christ. That's the first option. Thankfully, we turn from Judas and rejecting the love of Christ to the other character in the story, Peter, receiving the love of Christ. Back to the foot-washing scene. We cannot be sure, as some scholars suggest, that Judas was the first to have his feet washed. But we do know that Simon Peter was not the first. Because when Jesus reached him, Peter has a question. He came to Simon Peter, verse 6, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? It's clear that Peter is not happy with this prospect. 
For notice Jesus' answer. Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Verse 7. Now Peter uh, voices his objection. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. No doubt his motives were good. He thought he was not proper for his Lord and Master to wash his feet. To adopt the role of a slave. But Jesus makes it clear, this is an essential requirement. Look at verse 8. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. This is a crucial moment for Peter, as it was for Judas. Either he will reject Jesus' love in washing his feet and say, no. Or he will obey what his master says, even though he doesn't understand really what's happening. And his response, thankfully, is that of instant obedience. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, verse 9, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus tells him, Peter, that's not necessary. You and these other disciples, you're already made clean. Your bodies are clean. All you need is to be cleansed from the daily contamination of the world in which you live. Your feet need to be washed. Verse 10, Jesus answered, person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. John adds that Jesus knows that one of them, Judas, is not clean. But Peter and the other eleven are. Yes, even Peter, who will deny his master three times. Clean despite failure. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me, Peter? Tell you the truth before the cock crows. You will disown me three times. That will require some serious foot washing and bitter tears for Peter. But he is safe in the love of Jesus because he is already clean. Now it is clear as Jesus said to Peter that he and the other disciples did not yet understand what was happening on that wonderful yet terrible night. But one day they will understand that when Jesus washed their feet, it was a symbolic act of what he was to do the very next day. When he laid aside not only his clothes as he hung naked on a cross, but as we sang together, he laid aside his majesty and the glory that was his by right. And he humbled himself. Those words in Philippians 2, probably words of a great hymn that the Apostle Paul quotes, picks up that theme. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a slave, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's a wonderful picture of him divesting his glory, dying a criminal's cursed death on a cross. Now the question is, do we understand it? Do we understand that without the cross of Jesus, there can be no cleansing for sin? That's why he had to do it. That's why when he knew what was happening, if this had been a modern film or something, and he knew what Judas was going to do, you know what he'd have done? He'd have zapped him on the spot and thought, that's that plot squash. No, everything is under control. He knows he has to die for us. The just for the unjust to bring us to God. That we might be cleansed from sin. There is no other way but the way of the cross. 
Without the cross of Jesus, there's no cleansing from sin. And without cleansing from sin, you have no part with Jesus. You cannot have Christianity without a cross. You cannot have Christ without his sacrifice in blood. You cannot have forgiveness without the blood of Christ shed for you. Jesus says, unless this happens, you've got no part with me. You don't belong. So the question is, do you belong to Christ? Have we, have I, received his love? How do you stand before God? Do you stand as a sinner cleansed by the blood of Christ through the blood of the cross? That's the big question. Almost finished. Have you rejected the love of Jesus to this point? Or have you received the love of Jesus? Well, no matter what we may say in answer to that question, is there any way to tell? Yes, there is. There is a litmus test of love in this chapter. You see, Jesus says, those who have received my love will show my love to one another. Loving like Jesus. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples because you love one another. Have you received the love of Christ? The proof will be seen that you love other Christians. And that you love them like Jesus did. Sacrificially. By humbling yourself. That's why the great hymn began. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Your attitude should be the same of Christ Jesus, who humbled himself. In his outstanding commentary on John, as we study this, if you want a good commentary on John, it's an excellent commentary by Don Carson, who preached for us last year. He says, the new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate, profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. It's love seen in action. It is loving like Jesus and it is acting like Jesus. Look again at the words in John 13. That we read together. Verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes on, returned to his place. He said to them, Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord. Rightly so, that's what I am. Now that I... Your Lord and teacher have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. It doesn't necessarily mean literal foot washing, but it does mean humble service. It does mean humbling ourselves like Jesus, demonstrating the love of Jesus and the way that we live and react particularly to one another within the body of Christ. Have you rejected the love of Jesus or received the love of Jesus? Will you end up like Judas, a bitter loner or like Peter, a loving disciple? Have you received the love of Jesus? Have you rejected it? Today you have another opportunity, by God's grace, 
to respond to the love of Jesus, to receive the love of Jesus. Don't like Judas. Leave it too late. Let's pray together.